you and me. I'm your host, Ruben Dryblad, trail name Squeaks. Uh, pleasure to be with you once again on this fine day. It is August the 18th, Wednesday, August the 18th. I'm here at the Bryant Ridge Shelter, mile 1431 going south. <sighs> it is strange to say that, but I guess I've become a little accustomed to it, seeing as we've been back on trail for about a week. Uh, as you can tell from the title of this podcast, we know Bo flipped, now we sobo flop. Uh, so that was always part of the plan, was to do this flip-flop, where part of it is going north, part of it is going south. Uh, we summited Katahdin uh, at the northern terminus on July 31st which was the end of our northbound adventure. Uh, and we took 10 days off traveling to the Adirondacks. Then I went back to New York, D.C., and got back on trail a week ago today and uh, started heading south from the exact same spot that we had begun, which had a bit of a deja vu uh, feeling to it, though I guess because I was uh, knew that it was happening, it, it didn't it wasn't as strange and voodoo feeling as maybe uh, I thought it was going to feel, but uh, very much uh, have enjoyed the time so far uh, this past week heading south, but it's definitely been different, um, and in, in, in a few a few different ways uh, it's been different, and one of, those, one of those distinct differences is that there's just a lot fewer people on the trail right now in this specific uh, region where we are, which is basically central uh, central Virginia. Uh, we're about to get to Daleville, which is basically central dead center Virginia for the Appalachian Trail. Uh, and then from Daleville, we'll be heading into the southern Virginia area, the Virginia Triple Crown and whatnot. But yeah, a lot, lot fewer people on trail. All of the, the nobos, the northbounders have really long since passed this area, or if they haven't passed, they're just not going to make it to Baxter State Park, where Katahdin is in time before the park closes uh, for a couple months, uh, basically October, November. Uh, they, they don't really want people going up to Katahdin. It's really too cold and just too, too difficult to do search and rescue there if something did go wrong. So, uh, yeah, so there's not really northbounders and there's not really southbounders because most of them just haven't gotten to this area yet. Uh, they're probably still in, the fast ones are still in PA, uh, maybe they're in mid-southern PA, maybe, maybe they've made it through to Maryland or West Virginia, but most of them are, are, are still in the New England area or, or in that PA area, as I, as I mentioned, the mid-Atlantic. Um, so, you know, it's basically just um, me and Paxcale, my compadre on trail, as well as a few other flip-floppers who are a little bit behind us, um, and then the, the super-fast southbounders who actually just left the shelter. I, I was talking to them, Medicine Man and his friend Jacob, uh, who I don't know what his trail name was, but they are really flying. Medicine Man is, is doing, you know, 30, 40 miles a day night hiking, um, which, you know, is uh, his uh, preference. It's the way he wants to do it. He's got a tight budget, so... He's got to do it quickly, uh, so props to him because it's certainly tremendous feat, um, no pun intended on the feet there, uh, to do it that fast. Uh, I personally wouldn't want to do it that quickly. I just don't really have the, 
both the physical stamina for it, the mental wherewithal to do it that quickly. And then, you know, I, I, uh, you know, when I thought of doing this trip, it was, it wasn't just about, you know, blazing through the miles. Uh, although certainly I was excited to build myself up, uh, to longer days, but no, it was about seeing the views and doing some fun side trips and going into the towns and meeting the people and, you know, making fires and talking and, uh, getting a little slice of Americana. And, uh, I've kind of experienced that, uh, and it's been wonderful, but, uh, you know, as a result, <laughs> uh, I haven't been maybe doing as crazy, uh, mileage, uh, as, as this man, medicine man was doing, but that's okay. Uh, as, as everyone says, H Y O H hike your own hike. So again, props to him for, for going so quickly. And he actually was able to return pack scales spork to him, which, uh, got lost during the, uh, in between period of our flip and our flop. Somebody else accidentally took it. Um, by the name of dirt Fox, uh, a lovely flip flopper, but she's a little further behind us. And, it wasn't clear when she was going to catch up, so she gave it to Medicine Man, who was doing bigger days, and he passed it off to Scale the other day. So, Spork has been retrieved. Excellent. Very happy about that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, the trail is definitely, it's quieter. It's been a different experience going south now as a result. Uh, more solitude, a little more time to think, a little more time to listen to audiobooks or music out, out loud as opposed to having your headphones in, which is, is nice. Uh, of course, if I do see people on the trail, I turn that off or pause it or put in my headphones. But uh, it's nice to uh, be able to listen to something softly or loudly and not have to be completely plugged in, but still be able to enjoy the ambiance. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's definitely a, a key difference is that during our northbound flip, it was... Uh, you know, we were ahead of the, the northbound bubble, the big group of, of northbounders where shelters can get packed and the trail is just slammed with people. Uh, but, you know, we certainly still experienced meeting quite a few different people, um, northbounders on our way up. But luckily, we, you know, we were ahead of the, the big glut of hikers, which was the plan to begin with. So uh, that was, you know, the northbound experience was definitely... I think a little bit more of the quintessential Appalachian trail experience, whereas this now southbound flip is, is quieter and, uh, has more solitude as, as I mentioned. So, uh, both good and bad with that. Um, it just depends on your preference. Um, it can be, you know, a little lonely, but it's also, uh, reflective, you know, it gives you more time to, to just be on your own and really be uh, a hiker and, and not be, you know, inundated by, you know, other people chattering away or playing trail games or, you know, just, you don't really, during the northbound experience, we didn't really get that much time to be by ourselves. Um, There was moments of that, certainly, and you can find it regardless of, I guess, how many people you're hiking around, but it was, it was just, you know, it was a little busier. So I, I like now that we have a a vastly different experience going, going south. Um, and then of course, other differences are just the terrain. It's <laughs> the trail is, is much, much easier than it was in new England, especially in the New Hampshire and Southern Maine section, which is quite rigorous, quite difficult. The grade on those trails was, was very steep and very eroded, 
with, uh, you know, giant slippery roots. As, as I mentioned in previous podcasts, the main Final Frontier uh, episode and the one before that. So uh, I, I don't need to talk about New England now because we're down south, but it, the trail here is just so much, <laughs> so much easier now that we've done that, that section. So, uh, you know, that's, that means that I can go a little faster and push myself a little bit more. Uh, so we've been doing we've been doing pretty solid days. We've gone 106 miles. I as I say this right now from where I am at the shelter uh, in a week. So that's you know fairly impressive. I'm trying to finish by about October 11th. Uh, there's a concert in Atlanta on October 12th. I would like to go to as I think that would be a nice uh, bookend to the end of the trip. And uh, so hopefully that will be uh, feasible. And based on our pace right now, that is looking good. So that's excellent. Uh, when we started the trip, right when we got on trail, it was brutally, brutally hot. It was about 100, 102 degrees getting on trail, which is nearly impossible to hike in, frankly. Uh, and many of the water sources we got to were dry or very, very low. So I was rather concerned getting back on trail that it was just going to be impossible uh, with, you know, very long water carries and just too too hot of uh of uh, climate to, to hike in, but thankfully it has cooled off recently, though <laughs> it's cooled off by raining constantly. Uh, the last four days have been torrential oh, rain. It's gonna rain. Thankfully it's been coming at night. It's raining sideways. So we haven't really been getting rained on during the day while hiking, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's been really heavy, heavy rain. Bring me some soup. Which is good for the water sources. Um, and good for the trail and the south in general, which needs the rain, but a little tough uh, on the spirits. You know, I was hoping to make more fires in the south and uh, <laughs> experience uh, maybe not just, uh, you know, being socked in all the time, which is a phrase that I learned up in New England where you're basically hiking in the clouds and it's just wet. Uh, everything is wet. Your clothes are wet, even if it's not raining. It's just the humidity is is high and there's a lot of condensation in the air so we've had a couple of days like that so far coming back as a result of hurricane or tropical storm fred which has been coming up from the south so that's cooled off the trail as, as i mentioned but it's cooled it off and made us cool and wet uh, so you know everything is a it's got the double-edged sword effect right there's there's the positive there's the negative how you look at it how you spin it uh, thankfully it does seem that Fred has now finally dissipated and or just passed us. So we won't really have to worry about that now going forward, though there may be more tropical storms and hurricanes as we head south and into hurricane season. Uh, so going to keep an eye out for that and monitor that as best we can, uh, but continue to push on, continue to strive forward. As I said, uh, very excited for the Virginia triple crown, which is coming up and Many other highlights like the Rowan Highlands, the Grayson Highlands, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, which I can't wait to, to witness. Um, and uh, we have already done some uh, notable uh, mountains. The Priest uh, is, a, is a big mountain that many northbounders told us was going to be a brutal, brutal ascent uh, coming south. <laughs> uh, which is always uh, what people say. It's always that next mountain that you haven't done yet, which is going to be the hardest one, which is just funny no matter who you talk to. That, that's always the case. But frankly, it wasn't that difficult. There's so many switchbacks here in the south that it makes climbing the mountains a lot easier. You're not really going directly up. 
you're going, you're looping back and forth and back and forth, slaloming your way up and down. So makes it a lot more manageable. It does make it longer. So that climb up the priest was about five and a half miles, but it was very gradual. So uh, it was not, not overwhelmingly difficult. Uh, if anything, I was almost uh, <laughs> wishing that we were back in New England where it was a little more direct where you'd go right up. So yeah, you always uh, want what you can't have, but uh, I will now refer to my notes, see if there's anything else about the trail so far in the south I wanted to, to mention, talked about the rain, talked about the dry water sources. Yeah, you know, as as a whole, it's it, it's been manageable, certainly, and after doing the hard stuff, it, it really is not very difficult, so... Um, I think we will make that, that concert in Atlanta. So I'm, I'm happy about that. We've stayed at one hostel so far in Glasgow, Virginia, which was the Stanimals Hostel. He has a few different hostels. This guy, Paul Stanley, who hiked the AT in 04. He wasn't around. He was in the Waynesboro location. But uh, the lovely manager, Charlie, shuttled us around into town, into Lexington, to uh, resupply at Walmart and whatnot, and took us to a Mexican restaurant. And... You know, that, that is one of the benefits of being on the trail with less people is that you actually get more time to connect with the people who you do see because those people typically aren't in as much of a rush and, you know, they're not. The turnover at the hostels can be, you know, overwhelming for these, these owners when it's peak hiker season. There's just people in, people out, people in, people out, constant shuttling to and from the trail, waking people up, getting them out, getting them, making sure they pay. Uh, and it can be a lot and you don't really get a chance to connect to people, but I got a great chance to talk to Charlie who, uh, was former, formerly in the Navy and hiked a trail in 2019, uh, at the age of 60 something and was supported by a lot of his friends, did a lot of slack packing, which makes the trail easier where you don't have to carry your backpack. You just carry a little food and water and you get picked up and dropped off at the trailheads in the morning and in the evening. Uh, so it was great to, to talk to him and uh, meet somebody who's been working with hikers and uh, running this this hostel, being the manager at the hostel for this hiking season. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's something that hikers always say, or many hikers say, it's like, oh, uh, when I get off trail, I'm going to start a hostel, I'm going to run a hostel. Uh, <laughs> and he, uh, you know, he's got mixed feelings about it. Uh, he's, he says that this is not how he intended to spend his retirement, but he said that both begrudgingly and lovingly because he, he, he does enjoy meeting the hikers and talking to them. They are a unique bunch, certainly, of ragamuffin vagabonds. So uh, great, great chat with Charlie, and he was, he was very generous with his, with his time and uh, didn't charge us as much as he could have charged us. So we certainly appreciate that, Charlie, uh, and Stanimals. So... Uh, big thanks to those those fine people there, and I also want to give a shout out to the Sutton family and Sugarman, who was hiking with the Sutton. Sugarman, we met in Shenandoah at the beginning of our northbound uh, flip, and uh, the Suttons we met later on further in New England, I think sort of Vermont area, hard to totally remember, but the Suttons are now AT famous. They were a, uh, a family... And their, their son, Harvey, who was five years old, uh, whose trail name was Little Man, became the youngest AT hiker to hike the whole trail, to actually hike it on his own two feet. He's five years old, did the entire trail, absolutely incredible, January 14th to August 
10th or something. So about seven months. Uh, truly, truly incredible. There are younger people who have, quote unquote, done the trail, though they've been carried by their parents. So I think some people won't really consider that to be hiking the AT. I would say it probably doesn't count. But Harvey certainly, certainly does count. He, I watched him hike the AT. It was impressive to watch. Um, of course, there were times where his dad had to, you know, pick him up and move him from one place, <laughs> from one uh, step to the next, where it's just a little bit hard with somebody with such short legs. But still, he, uh, he hiked the whole thing. Super impressive. Great family. Really nice. Um, and they did trail magic for us right before going up the priest basically only two days after we had gotten back on the trail after our break in between. Um, and it was, uh, it was nice to see people and nice to get some trail magic because there's going to be a little bit less of trail magic now uh, going south just because we're out of the normal sort of hiking window of when people will be down here. So the normal trail angels in the area won't really be stocking the uh, trailheads or the, the road crossings with coolers of of food and, and drink and won't be there maybe grilling to, to give food to hikers, which is kind of the essence of trail magic. It's, it's what you hope for. And it's what we got plenty of going North. Um, and yeah, just to reiterate trail magic is basically just when other people in the hiking community do nice things for hikers, generally giving them food and drink, um, or sometimes taking them into their, to their place, letting them stay over shower, laundry, for free, you know, always, always for free, uh, is the essence of trail magic. And, uh, those trail angels, people who do that are, are, uh, you know, a big, uh, a, I want to say just a, a big, a big element to the, to the community and something that people really look forward to when they're getting on trails, something I was very excited to experience and something I was just blown away with in terms of the generosity um, and it, it definitely instills that generosity within you of wanting to give back and, and something I would want to do next year during hiking season uh, up in the New York uh, section of the trail where I'll be able to access it most easily. So very much appreciate the Suttons and Sugar Man for giving us trail magic and for meeting us at that road crossing. It, it certainly helped us get up the priest, and it was just nice to witness and fun to see people who you had hiked with before. So... Again, congratulations to the Suttons, congratulations to Sugar Man, and I hope uh, everything works out with his quest to uh, join the Peace Corps. They keep moving it back because of COVID, which is a, a bummer, but he's a great guy, and I'm sure he'll do great things with, with the Peace Corps, I've, I have no doubt. So again, a thank you to them. I also want to say thank you to Mitch Locke and to Evan Cohen for both donating to my trail fund. I made a post about that on Facebook, and we'll probably put up maybe a little something on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to quote unquote beg. I, I, I don't want to overly solicit, especially as someone who worked briefly in the nonprofit world. Um, I appreciate anything that people can, can give. Uh, it doesn't have to be money. Uh, it can just be nice wishes or it can be an offer to stay at their place when I'm nearby uh, on the trail. Uh, but really, any any little bit helps. Um, you know, it's it's been an expensive trip. I was prepared for it to be expensive. I certainly saved up uh, quite a bit of money to do the trail. But, you know, costs add up. Things come out of nowhere. I'm on my fifth pair of shoes. Each pair of shoes is about $150. So, you know, that, that adds up quick. I'm on my third water filter after previous ones have broken. 
third pair of trekking poles, you know, different, different things have, have come up and, um, uh, you know, that I wasn't necessarily prepared for. Uh, so, uh, whatever people can, can give, whether it's time or money, I certainly appreciate it. I think a tree just fell actually, uh, maybe just a branch, but <laughs> so I was a little minorly distracted there. A lot of, a lot of falling, uh, trees and branches due to the the storm and uh the dryness of the trail before the storm stuff just really isn't rooted and and holding on as well so the big gusts last night just knocked a lot down um but hopefully i won't get decapitated while hiking uh, <laughs> and um yeah so uh, again thank you to mitch and evan for your generous donations i, I do really appreciate it hope that we can connect when i'm done with the trail it would be great to see both of you guys um i also want to talk about uh the anthony bourdain book that i just finished listening to in only a week actually it's just a really fun listen as someone who's interested in both fine dining and sort of the uh you know pop culture personality that anthony bourdain was and what he what he did to make food and travel so accessible and so exciting to uh, to really everybody who engaged with his content, whether it was Parts Unknown or No Reservations. Um, and, you know, it, a lot of that really stemmed from that book that he wrote in 2000, Kitchen Confidential, which is the one I listened to. Um, fantastic, fantastic listen. Um, I have great respect for chefs. I've spent time working in the food industry, both in my kitchen at the summer camp and uh, at Ready to Eat, the catering and takeaway business in the West Village. You know, people who work in kitchens are hard, <laughs> hard mofos, uh, to put it to put it lightly. It, it takes it takes a lot to to work consistently and to work at a at a um, a high a high high quality uh, output in in a kitchen environment it is it is not easy it is not like just sitting down in front of a computer and, and tapping away and going to the break room for a cup of coffee you are on from the moment you start to the moment you end you are on your feet you are working with your hands there are smells and sights and pressure and heat like you would not believe it is it is difficult difficult work that often goes unappreciated and um it's uh it's it was great listening to Bourdain's journey uh becoming uh, to becoming a chef um and his rising through the ranks and uh all the little different tidbits that he talks about the discourse in the kitchen and uh what it's like dealing with owners and purveyors um and uh, you know it's it's fun it's he's got a real rock and roll quality to him uh with the you know uh, the sex and the drugs and the and, and the whatnot uh that that he experienced in his life and not to glamorize that but certainly there is a, a glamour element to it it's something that people enjoy listening to because it's exciting and it's stuff that a lot of people don't experience necessarily in life um so to live vicariously through him in that regard uh was enjoyable and you know there's two you know, he gives a lot of advice in the book. There's there's two uh, aphorisms that, in particular to me, stick out. Now, they're ones I've heard before, um, and they're sort of, it's military jargon, 
I don't know if both of them started in the military, but they're certainly uh, used in the military. So the two that I uh, that he mentions a few times that I want to mention, because uh, I think they're worth noting, and I've been thinking about them as I've been hiking, um, are as follows. And the first one is prior preparation prevents poor performance. That's a little bit of a tongue twister there with all the peas. Peter Piper picked a patch of pickled peppers over here. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, that one is, you know, it's 100%. It's, it's, it's the nail on the head right there. Prior preparation does prevent poor performance. Um, you got to be prepared, as the Boy Scouts said. And it, it will just, it, it'll, it'll suit you well to remember that in all, all manners of life, whether it's your personal relationships, whether it's your working relationships. Uh, be prepared. Know what you're getting yourself into have the requisite tools and skills uh, to do a good job because doing a poor job, while maybe once or twice you'll get some leeway, people will you know, forgive you or give you a second chance, you don't get more than a second chance in, in many, in many uh, lines of work and in personal relationships as well. So do yourself a favor and uh, be prepared. So that was the first one. And then the second one was lead, follow, or get out of the way. That one I'm almost positive is a military um, turn of phrase there. But that one also speaks to me. I think, you know, we, 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 we got to choose, right? You got you to gotta either know that what you're doing is, is right and you're going to, you know, bull forward and, and you're going to be the leader and you're going to take uh, – take the wheel and, and show people the way or you're going to follow that leader uh and you're going to accept that they're they know what they're doing and you're gonna you're gonna be right behind them and be ready to assist in whatever whatever manner is necessary and that's exactly what sort of a sous chef is in the kitchen to bring it back to cooking into Bourdain uh you know the sous chef is the number two right after the the head chef and uh, the sous chef has to be following the, the head chef the whole way. They got to be simpatico. They got to really be aligned, uh, as does the rest of the kitchen, but particularly the sous chef. Um, so, and then, you know, that, 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 that third element of, or get out of the way, you know, you, if you're not capable of doing one or the other, just don't be a distraction. Just don't, don't be someone that brings down the rest of the team because, you want special treatment or you want extra explanations that, you know, the middle of the dinner rush is not the time to do that. Just get out of the way. And the best you can do is really just watch and sort of learn by watching. And uh, through that experience, you'll hopefully be able to take away something meaningful until the point that you are capable of following and eventually hopefully leading. Uh, so those were two particular poignant uh, aphorisms, as I overuse that word, uh, that were from the book. Uh, the book is fantastic. It's, it's, it's really, it's a lot of fun to listen to. Normally, I am a little slower with some of the audiobooks I've been listening to, like The Broken Ladder by Keith Payne, uh, which is about inequality, and then 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, which is really dense. Um, but this one was uh, an easy breeze to, <laughs> to listen to fantastic and I, I can't recommend it enough especially if you're interested in in food uh, or Bourdain um, and my interest in Bourdain kind of uh, was reignited by watching 
the Roadrunner documentary in New York during my uh, brief intermission between the flip and the flop. Uh, and uh, I also recommend the documentary. It's very well done, uh, moving, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wasn't the biggest Bourdain fan uh, by any means. I, I didn't really watch that much of his uh, TV shows or whatnot before, but he was always someone who interested me uh, on the periphery, and watching the Roadrunner documentary definitely got me thinking of, hey, I should learn a little bit more about this guy because he was a unique character, and they don't, they don't come around all that often, and his, his way of speaking, his way of writing, and his way of being are not necessarily to be modeled, but to at least be uh, appreciated and noted for, for uh, his craftsmanship because it was certainly high, and he expected um, a high level of skill. And uh, it's, uh, it's something to try to hold yourself to at times. At times, not always. Uh, apologies on that brief pause there. I almost just got stung by a bee uh, again. I've already been stung twice since being back on trail, so... I'm a little sensitive to it, so I saw a guy buzzing, had to put a little pause on the pod, but I'm back, have no fear, the bee has uh, dissipated, um, hopefully it won't be coming buzzing back here. Good to see the bees out, of course, considering the fact that the bumblebee population has been decimated and it's an integral part of the food chain, but I also don't like being stung, because it hurts. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, apologies on that distraction. I want to read a excerpt from Vagabonding as I tend to do on this podcast. Um, and uh, then we'll put a little brief pause on it. That might be it uh, for this episode seven, but perhaps uh, there will be a part two. I might surprise myself, might surprise you guys with a little part two if uh, Paxgale catches up to me at the shelter um, or if I'm able to talk to uh, another thru-hiker and, and get them on the pod um, or if something else comes to mind. You never know. I try to keep this thing loosey-goosey. It's not some uber professional podcast where I'm, you know, doing ads for all birds and whatnot. So uh, here is a little segment from Vagabonding. Again, Vagabonding is a book by Rolf Potts. It's all about the art of uh, long-term world travel for cheap. Tons of great insights in this book about traveling and uh, about how to travel properly, um, how to be a traveler, not just a tourist, uh, which is something Rolf thinks Maybe that distinction doesn't matter quite as much. Uh, Bourdain cared about it more. We can go into that a little later, I think. But uh, here is an excerpt about not setting limits for yourself. Don't set limits on what you can or can't do. Don't set limits on what is or isn't worthy of your time. Dare yourself to play games with your day. Watch, wait, listen, allow things to happen. Wherever you are, be it the Vatican gift shop, a jungle village in Panama, or downtown Ugadugu, keep aware of the, t of the tiniest ticks and details that surround you. As Dean McCannell pointed out, anything that is remarked, even little flowers or leaves picked up off the ground and shown to a child, even a shoeshine or gravel pit, anything is potentially an attraction. Sometimes we have official guides and travelogues to assist us in this point. Usually, we are on our own. 
How else do we know another person except as an ensemble of suggestions hollowed out from the universe of possible suggestions? How else do we begin to know the world? In this way, vagabonding is like a pilgrimage without a specific destination or goal. Not a quest for answers so much as a celebration of the questions, an embrace of the ambiguous, and an openness to anything that comes your way. Indeed, if you set off down the road with specific agendas and goals, you will at best discover the pleasure of actualizing them. But if you wander with open eyes and simple curiosity, you'll discover a much richer pleasure, the simple feeling of possibility that hums from every direction as you move from place to place. So that's a little segment there uh, from Vagabonding. And, uh, you know, while this trip is, as I've said before, kind of vagabonding adjacent, because there is certainly a specific goal in mind of finishing the trail, uh, I do try to hike uh, with an openness that anything can happen uh, and take breaks when I feel like it to take in a view or start to smell the flowers, literally. Uh, there is uh, a bounty of possibility on the trail if you're not so rigorous in just hiking super fast and super hard every day and again not knocking those people really trying not to even though it might sound like it um it's just not the way i wanted to do the trip i i didn't want to put limits on it in that way uh, and i wanted to have an openness where anything can happen and there's a there's a beauty to that um and there's one more quote here that's sort of uh uh put in on the side of of the text it says what i find is that you can do almost anything or go or go almost anywhere if you're not in a hurry that's paul thoreau quoting tony the beachcomber in the happy isles of oceania and that's uh that's exactly what that uh that whole passage was about is that anything can happen if you're not super rushed and you don't overclock yourself and overwork yourself and you give yourself the opportunity to allow things to happen things will happen and uh they might not be what you expected and they might not be exactly what you want but uh sometimes they will be and sometimes they'll be so magical that you will almost think that it wasn't real um and uh yeah that's uh that's all for me right now squeaks signing off Hope you enjoyed uh, the pod so far. Again, there might be a little bit more after this, but this might be it for episode seven. Going to keep doing a couple more episodes, hopefully get to 10 episodes by the end of the trail. Hope you've been enjoying the podcast. Hope you've been enjoying the pretty pictures on Instagram. Uh, click the link in the bio where you can access the podcast and uh, see the GPS location of where we are uh, and uh, donate to the trail fund if you so wish. So thanks again, everyone. Stay safe. Enjoy the rest of your summer. And I'll see you back in New York.